Hey everyone, it's Kelly. I hope you are having a glorious day. I am in the middle of our massive US tour and it has been just the most soul-filling few weeks already. I really am quite speechless about all of it. I wanted to come on before this episode and just give you a heads up about some pretty intense topics that Danny and I cover. Uh, As you all know, May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and I wanted to put this episode up for you during the month of May. Danny is extremely open and speaks passionately about what he has had to overcome. There's a book that he references, and he couldn't remember the title, so here it is. It is called Complex PTSD, From Surviving to Thriving by Pete Walker. I will put that in the show notes as well. The language is salty. We talk about some very adult traumas, and I want to make sure that you are aware of that so you might not want your kiddos in the room. Also, something kept coming up when I listened back to this conversation. I don't remember when this happened, but there was a campaign many years ago called It Gets Better. And it was a campaign mainly referencing to LGBTQ youth about staying the course and that it gets better. And there's something that happens in the conversation with Danny and I where we have a sort of levity with each other that only comes from the friendship that we have. We are practically brother and sister. So when we're talking about these deeply traumatic things, sometimes we might goof off a little bit or be more lighthearted than someone might understand. And at first I thought, gosh, I probably should be more intentional about that conversation. But what I realized was, is this is exactly the representation we need to see and hear, which is it does get better. Whatever you are going through, whatever traumas you have experienced, it does get better. And as Danny and I talk about There are so many resources out there. I was quite shocked because I know Danny's journey and I know all the things that he has done that this book that he references quite a bit was really profound to him. I want you all to know that there is always help. You can always reach out. I will often provide places and numbers that you can call but you can simply make a Google search these days, which is pretty incredible uh, if you need to talk to somebody. Okay, I hope you enjoy this episode with my dear, dear friend, Danny Roberts. He really is such an open book, and I felt honored that he trusted me to carry his words to your ears. Hey guys, I'm Kelly Wolf. And this is the Flow Podcast. I feel like I have to clear something up. So when people hear the word flow, they always ask me, is this a yoga class or just something that can happen when you're surfing? But this flow stands for finding love over worry. And this podcast is all about the ways that you can have more flow in your life. On the Flow Podcast, I'm going to share my wisdom as a coach, a writer, a speaker, and a mama. I want to give you all the goods so that you can start your flow journey today. All right, let's get started. 
One of the things I get asked about the most are recommendations for coaches in different niche areas. I have a coach who I recommend to all parents who have found themselves feeling like they are alone in their parenting journey because their child was born in a way that they didn't expect. Margaret Webb Life Coaching is a true unicorn, you guys. She is a master certified life coach. She is certified nature-based coach. She is a former teacher, but her most important journey and job on this life was being a mother to her 17-year-old son who is on the autism spectrum. She works with parents who feel incredibly alone in their journey with a child that they didn't expect. And she wants to remind those parents that not only are they not alone, but there are things that they can do to bring ease and joy in their life that they may have never considered. I call Margaret a friend. She is a profoundly gifted coach. And if you have found yourself on this journey, I would not hesitate to reach out to her. Go to Margaret Webb lifecoach.com. And that is web with two B's. And I promise that this will change the journey for you. Are you celebrating the moments of your life, the big and small moments of your life? Because our friends at 1111 Wines believe in just that. In fact, their tagline is make your moment. You guys, I've been a fan of 1111 Wines for years. They are a luxury wine brand. They have one of the top winemakers in the world, Kirk Vengay, and they believe deeply in the power of connection. 1111 has so much to offer. You can be a wine club member, which gives you incredible perks, one of which is priority booking in their incredible vineyard house. Guys, I booked it last year and did it to mark a really special occasion in my life, and I will never forget it. So the next time that you want to make a moment in your life, consider giving the gift of 1111 Wines to someone that you love, or give it to yourself. Sign up for the wine club, go to their website at 1111wines.com, and be ready to make your moment. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Flow Podcast. Per your deep desire and mine as well, I have Danny Roberts with me today, and I could not be happier. If you don't know who Danny is, I'm going to first, as usual, give you the Wikipedia bio, and then I'm going to give you my bio. So, Danny, this is what I do, and you're going to listen and you're going to tell me what I get right and what I get wrong. Okay, Wikipedia says you grew up in Rockmart, Georgia. You went to college for foreign language education. You went to U- University of Georgia. Go Buckheads. Is that what it's called? No. Bulldogs. Sorry. <laughs> okay, then uh, you probably had a lot of life that happened there. And then at some point, you got onto real world, but uh, Wikipedia doesn't know about that. You went on to be a global speaker and a highly recognized public figure. You then became a recruiter for MailChimp, Redfin, and now tell me what you're doing, because it didn't say. Yes, it's too new for it to say. Now I am a recruiter at a a company called Codecademy, which is online education. But you've stayed in the recruiter lane. Yep, I'm still recruiting, still hiring in tech and working in the startup world. I can see why 
that people would want to hire you as a recruiter. Because the way you disarm people and the way that people are just gravitationally pulled to you, I, I, I can totally see how that world would want to grab you up because then you would bring that into their company. It's ultimately people sales and, and connecting with people and listening to people and building trust. Right. All about trust. Which is you. Okay, Danny, now I'm going to give you my personal bio. The fun Danny, stuff. Jason, Danny Roberts. Grew up in Rock Mart, Georgia. Very small town. About an hour outside of Atlanta. He has two brothers. His parents are still together. And he had his whole childhood there, didn't leave or move anyplace else. He did a bunch of odd jobs in maybe even junior high and high school. And he gets into University of Georgia, which we talked about. Go Bulldogs. (laughs) I got it right that time. Where he studies foreign language education. But I think the addition to that is French in particular. And at some point in there, I'm pretty sure he went to Quebec to study French and the reason I really know that is because he still gets crap for his Quebecian accent when we're in actual France. Apparently, that's a thing. They say we instead of we, or is that right? Something they're like essentially that? the rednecks of, of, of French. There you go. Sorry, Quebec. We love you. And by the way, they're my favorite. Then Danny's dating for quite a few years, a gal named Jen, and they are together See, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking right now. They are together for most of their college experience. You're going to correct this where it's wrong. And at some point in this experience, they both come out to each other, meaning Jen comes out to Danny. Danny comes out to Jen. They're both gay. They both aren't into each other's beeswax. Shortly thereafter, Danny is somewhere, and there's an open casting call for the real world. And he just wanders in. It's very random. He didn't really think the whole thing through. I don't think at this point he's even come out to his family, but again, he'll he'll clarify that. So he goes in, he goes into the casting call. Obviously, if you have been around Danny, seen Danny, experienced him in any facet, you will know what I'm talking about. He's electric. There is he doesn't know it. I can see his face right now. He does he's the person who knows it the least, but all of us around him, it's like an otherworldly energy. So I can just tell the real world is like and, you know, clawing at the walls there. You probably got in that day. I mean, I wouldn't even be surprised if they were like, screw the rest of the process. We would need this guy that I can see you nodding. That is so crazy. Okay. Which we'll explain later why that never happens, but it happened to Danny, but they saw the gold necklace that he is. So he goes on to the real world and I think maybe comes out to his family just before or possibly on the show. We're going to clarify that. Here's where I come in. I show up at the show. I don't want to get into too much of this because I don't want to ruin it for you guys. But at the time, Danny is dating Paul, and Paul is in the military. And this is during Don't Ask, Don't Tell. So there was a whole lot of stuff that was going around about that energy. And Paul was going to come, and it was really scary. And you guys all probably saw that. And the way that I experienced Danny quickly, we became really close really fast. I think both of us felt completely terrified at what we were doing, but also intrigued by the process. We didn't want to play into all of the drama trauma that goes on on those shows. So we kind of pulled back. But I think with Danny's story, he didn't have to play into any drama. I think just intrinsically what was happening with you at that time was what it was. So you didn't have to add to it. 
Cut to, we get off the show, and of course, quickly, Danny becomes, and this is just my bio on you, I call you the gay Brad Pitt of the time. <laughs> because, and listen, you will, you understand this. I have never seen, I'm married to an actor. I'm around a lot of known people. I've never seen what happened to you. I mean, it was the most I would, I feel overwhelming kind of energy coming at you. And if you kind of knew the background, you knew that you didn't have your gay sea legs yet in the world, but yet you were the icon to so many people. And we're going to talk about that. But I think that was really jarring. I think that was really intense. And I feel like it kind of threw you and made you want to put some barriers around you for protection. So we're going to get into that. Tell me what I got right. Tell me what I got wrong. Fill in some gaps. Bella, you you did amazingly well. I can't believe the level of detail you remembered. You got literally everything correct except for one little detail. It was Jen going back to college. Jen and I had met that year. Mm-hmm. It was the end of school for actually both of us. And, uh, and we ended up actually living together in Atlanta post-university also. So I was actually living on her couch and yes, by this point we had both actually come out to each other that we were still hanging out and being crazy and wild and 22 years old and all that fun stuff. But did you know that she was gay and do you feel like she knew that you were? I think, I think we subconsciously probably knew it. we were drawn to each other for some of that reason. We actually met, this is funny, we actually met in a drama class. I took drama to help me get over my fear of public speaking. So the teacher in this class was a flamboyantly gay man who clearly targeted me right from the start to humiliate me. Oh. Uh, and, and, and Jen and I's theory is that we both think he knew that I was gay, but not admitting it or not being mm-hmm. open about it. The reason was, was I hadn't admitted to myself yet, like, not only was I not about to come out to a, a random class I'm in, but I wasn't out to myself, really. Um, a handful of people like Jen knew who I admitted, but I was far from, from that point. This teacher, he had it out for me, and he put me into the most humiliating scene. He picked the hottest guy in the class to do a gay scene with me, <laughs> knowing exactly what he was doing. And it was so uncomfortable when we presented that he made us do it over and over and over and over in front of of the class. Oh my God. And the more he made us do it, the more humiliated I felt and the more, the more poorly we performed. What do you think of that? I mean, I'm sitting here horrified for a million reasons, obviously, but what do you think of it now as a grown adult upon reflection of what do you think his idea was there? Yeah, I mean, thinking back, like Jen and I have talked about it a lot. And by the way, that's how Jen and I actually met. That was the point of this whole story is we we were in that class together and she started talking to me after that. I was like, I'm so sorry for you. That was so painful to watch. (laughs) That's how we bonded. You know, and she obviously knew right then what was happening. She saw it too. Mm. And And again, I think that's why subconsciously we were drawn to each other. So, yeah, I think that is something. Do you think that at that time, because there were so many, it was such a uh, a challenging time to be out, especially in the South, do you think there, I don't want to say a chip on somebody's shoulder, but an almost like, please come, everybody needs to come to the table here. From his point of view, he's doing it in clearly the absolutely wrong way. But do you think that there was a vibration there? And does that vibration still exist? 
Absolutely. Yeah, that's exactly what it was. It was a time when almost no one was publicly out, period. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone was pretty secretive. The internet was being just being starting to be widely used on campuses. So it was allowing some space and freedom for people to come out, but only essentially online. And I think people like him who were out, who were living them, their genuine selves, were just desperate for anyone to join them and frustrated, but also mm-hmm. coming from a really unevolved place trying to force you into their space instead of giving you the space that you need to get there. I absolutely understand that frustration and it and it still goes on to this day. Absolutely. We're in this strange dichotomy now where yes, it's like generally okay to be out, but it's not everywhere. And people forget mm. that. We're in a very, very polarized country. And depending on where you live, you essentially live in a different time era. For some people, this sort of environment is still totally the norm. And you know, so I'd say it's probably more common now than ever with people trying to force those who are still in the closet. I'm experiencing that now living in Vermont. Almost everyone's in the closet here. They all, wow. They're all rural. They live in these little small villages. Anyone you meet is probably fully or quasi in the closet. And I can't tell you how many guys have told me that they either were married to a woman or still are married to a woman, <laughs> but are really seeing men too because they don't feel comfortable being fully out. I was just thinking about that. You must hear that a lot because I know that you people share that with you a lot, but then also you're holding that a lot. You hold a lot of people's deep secret that then you can't tell. Yeah. I mean, that's a heavy thing. It's a lot to carry. It was a big piece of the story of my own brother. My, my youngest brother, who's 10 years younger than me for the longest time was deeply in the closet. I knew it I knew it before he did. When he finally came out to me, you know, in his late teens, I was like, oh, thanks for telling me. I'm glad you finally told me. I've known this. But he waited until his late 20s to come out to the rest of my family. I had to carry that the entire time. It absolutely affected our relationship. We did an interview. You know Libby, our, Mm -hmm. our mutual friend Libby. We did an interview with her a few weeks ago, and she didn't come out till she was 27. I know I was shocked to learn that. I think I brought this up a little bit, so it's okay, I think, for me to say this, but I actually spoke to her sister a little bit before I did the interview with her, kind of because when you know somebody and you know somebody so deeply, you don't get any other context about them or who they are outside of that relationship. And I was curious about what she was like growing up. And I see her as such this kind of sage, you know, calm all the time and wise all the time. And her sister said she was so hard. And so, I mean, she even used some words like she was straight up mean, but she goes, I understand why, because she was living in this consistent lie and just did not know which way was up and which way was down. And I think that's something, and we'll, we'll talk about it later about how holding on to secrets and holding on to things like that, how they can manifest in your body, how they can manifest to be depression, pain, disease, right? Even would you take it that far? Absolutely. I mean, you are you you end up forcing yourself to live different existences and and it 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 it's a burden to continually navigate which existence you're presenting. Yeah. It's like something constantly dragging on your battery. And when I was shocked to learn that about her too, but then it made sense because you think about like she's a just slightly older than us. And and it's amazing how much has changed in the, just the past 15, 20 years. But, you know, before that, even through like the 90s, like she was really coming of age through the 80s and 90s and back then. And a small town, East Coast, small town. You know, it's what you're talking about. I probably waited to that age, too, if 
honestly, I think the real world is what really inspired me to be like, oh, I can do this. So let me ask you that about about growing up in a in a small town, though. Did you have? And we're, this isn't all going to be about being gay. <laughs> Danny, there's so much more. There's so much more to all of this. But when you were growing up in in your small town, I'm imagining that part of that is we don't, there's nothing to see, which I think is also part of why people gravitated to you so much. You became a blueprint for people, I think, in a lot of ways. And there were very few blueprints, at least on accessible television. And if there were, they were sort of flamboyant and let me be your best friend who shops for shoes. And I think you showed up as, wait a minute, guys, there's no blueprint. There is no thing where everybody's not the same. And that really threw all that that energy at you. But when you were a kid, what did you see in terms of that world? Did you see anybody that was safely out? Did you have any kind of touchstone for that? Right. Yeah. Where I grew up in the small town, we didn't have cable until I was, you know, late teen years and I didn't watch a ton of it either. Just enough to to honestly see the first real world New York, which made a real impact on me. Like I had always sort of had this dream of knowing there's so much more out there, but in those times pre-internet, you just didn't have access to it. It's so bizarre to say now and think but you literally had very lim- limited access to any sort of media or content or presentation outside of your bubble. Whatever your town presented to you, that was life. That was existence. But I, I knew there was so much more out there. And seeing the real world New York was sort of my window. Like, was that Norman? It was Norm, yes. Mm-hmm. And it made an impact on me. It did. It sort of it, it opened a major window for me to, you know, it planted a seed in my head to seek that out later in life. But yes, growing up, I, my concept of what gay was, was very narrow, very bigoted. Mostly what it was, was hearing how people. Yeah. I was going to say, what did you hear? What I heard around me was deep, deep vitriol and hate and violence. Mm. Gay. Like I got bullied all through school because kids just thought I might be gay. They just actually, what they sensed was that I was different. I was artistic. I was creative. I was sensitive different from the other kids in any kind of way got you negative attention. And like so many kids in our culture, I got bullied like crazy and violently too. And I was never even remotely out. Like I I wouldn't even allow myself to even relate to that anyway. To me, that was a disease that people in cities had. So that dialogue, that, that way of thinking seeped into how you perceived all of it and just fully rejected it. So you probably, did you even know, did you even feel that in yourself? Completely, Kelly, to this day, I am still deprogramming that shit out of me. Wow. It has been a lifelong journey to deprogram, you know, on a logical level, you can end that quickly. And I did years ago, but on a deep, deep mind script level, that shit is my code. And I am consistently, continually to this day, working to erase that code. What has helped you decode that? What has helped you challenge it? A life of painful life learning lessons and relationships, lots and lots of therapy, but more so recently being so like many COVID sort of knocked me off the grid. I lost my job, sort of literally moved off the grid and I'm living in my cabin up in Vermont right now. So I had almost an entire year of a lot of downtime where I was able to just sit with my thoughts, sit with myself, face painful shit, 
think through a lot of painful shit that I just never had the time because I've been going, 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 you know, living in the city. I lived in New York previously. It's like, you just go, 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 go. You survive. You don't have time to process a lot of this. So just real quick there, you get, you lose a job. You've been living in Manhattan. You go out into the woods during COVID. And you said that was kind of illuminating for you where I feel like a lot of people might go, uh-oh. Well, I definitely went, uh-oh, because all the little voices that have been in my head and on my shoulders, I could suddenly hear them all. <laughs> Whereas yeah. before they just got lost in the noise of the city. So it was like, uh-oh, this is going to be a road trip. And it has been. Was there anything you did consistently that helped you through that process while alone processing through a lot of these things? Was there anything you did that you can call out that you can name? Yes, there's a few pieces of the puzzle here. Thankfully, probably a year before COVID hit, I sort of stumbled into the realization that at the core of what I've been dealing with, and you touched on it earlier, like I've been dealing with what is called CPTSD, complex PTSD. It's what happens. In, and I think many people in our culture are deeply traumatized in this way, but especially LGBT people are deeply traumatized in this way. It's, you know, it's this when you've had continual, continual, continual trauma, you get trapped your brain gets wired to, to, to run. You're in constant danger. And you touched on it going back to that real world experience. Coming from where I came from, I still had my Boy Scout kit <laughs> or my Cub Scout kit. I was not prepared for the army life that I was thrown into. Oh, that's such a great way to, to say it. I wasn't. And I, I thought I was and I played along like I was in it and I pretended to be for years. But like over time, the results of that became more and more present. My reactions as a continual fight or flight, the way it's reacted, uh, affected my life, the relationships, the type of relationships I've had, and that gets us back to recently. So in this time I've had to sit, thankfully, what I realized about a year before COVID was that, yes, what I've been dealing with this whole time was CPTSD, all this like constellation of symptoms and, and, and diagnoses and blah, 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 and, and different tidbits from self-help that worked here and there. It all gelled together to realize like, this is all a constellation that's actually CPTSD. So like mm. knowing that, seeing a therapist who specialize in that and, and just helping me like learn to ground myself in that and knowing that's actually what drives all of my behavior was what has then led me on this journey through COVID where I've had the quiet time to do the work. Found in a freaking amazing book that is written by someone who I would call a coach before coaching was a thing he wrote it in the eighties. He comes from part psychotherapy, but just part coaching. So there's sort of two elements involved in that. And one is like clinical, but one is actually more human and he brings them together nicely. Uh, I wish I, I had the title for you at this moment, but. Oh no, you left me hanging there. I was waiting for the, the title, but guess what? When you find it, tell me, and I'm going to put it in my show notes. Yes, it can go up in the notes, where, which is where it's probably best lived. Anyhow, it's not written in a way where you need to le read it in a linear path. You can jump mm -hmm. to, to speak to you and your actions, your normal reactions, and then what that's tied to. And then the actual like really daily tools that you can use to reground yourself in more productive ways. It's just this like process of becoming aware. Oh, like, oh, this triggers me. <laughs> this is how I react every time. This is why naturally, duh, it makes total sense. And here is how 
I can start rerouting myself in a more productive way. Mm. I mean, this is a this is going to be the most shameless plug of my entire life, but that is flow. You know, I think I, I need to, I want to hear the the book too and what you just said, I think you know I'm writing my book. And even today I was working on it. And and I think we all go through these moments, but I was like, Ugh, I don't know if this matters. And then I'm like, what you just said reminded me, of course it matters. And it matters that you don't know who's going to find it, when and where and how. And I know how much work you've done. I know how many things you've done. And, and again, I'll say this to anybody that's listening. You can't blow over the work. You just can't. You had to go see therapists. You had to get all the diagnoses to get to this point. And then when the light bulbs begin to go off and you're ready for that that time of healing, there are real, doable, tangible things. And I say that my the opening of my book says, any of these paths are a chicken recipe. Just find your chicken recipe. And you found this one. And then make that chicken recipe for every potluck that you go to and every time that you need a comfort meal at night. And don't get tripped up by Julia Child's recipe and Thomas Keller's recipe. Just stay focused and do do that work on repeat. And it will begin to change who you are and how you respond. And it sounds like that's happening. Yeah, I think today we all want some like easy, fast path to like fix, 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 fix my problems, help me overcome these challenges. Unfortunately, I don't think that's the way life works. No. You have to go down so many dead ends. Always trust your gut if you feel like this is not doing anything for me or or I've reached my limit with this. Like, mm. I've yeah. I've just grown out of a certain thing and it's time. It doesn't make it bad. It doesn't make that thing bad or wrong. It's just ne- it's time for the next thing. You've just evolved past that place. And it's not always talk therapy and it's not always books. And it, you know, it's, it's, it's mixing all of these ingredients together. Unfortunately, yeah, there's not like a direct path for anyone or most people at least. But yeah, this took me, you know, this has been like a 15 year pain. I know. Well, so, okay. One fun question. (laughs) So I put on my Instagram for people to ask questions and I thought this would be kind of a fun one for you and I. So I feel like a good stepping off point. And thank you for being so vulnerable and talking about those things. I, I know that you maybe were an accidental activist in all of this, but you are one of the most profound activists in all of this. And and the world is better for having you even sometimes <laughs> getting dragged behind the car, but for, for people to, to learn and to see and to grow. So thank you. And thank you for just showing up that way. And I can tell you, even just putting little blips of you in social media or when I talk about you, your God, your, your, your impact your life has had so much meaning for so many people. And it is unbelievable, Danny. I mean, it could make me cry. Okay, so here's the fun question. What did you think of me when I first walked in the real world door? Now, listen, you got to tell the truth. All right. I don't want to hear any like, oh, let's try to be nice. Or, or maybe you can be nice about it. I don't, it doesn't matter. But what was your, what were your thoughts? And then I'm going to tell you mine. Oh, this is a fun question. And I like this. Uh, I mean, obviously it was like, okay, here's the hot girl. (laughs) What is this girl's story? And, you know, the immediate go-to in my mind would be just to immediately dismiss you as like, oh, this is some hot white girl who's had it easy her whole life. But like you said, we quickly, for whatever reason, I don't recall like the, you know, the initial conversations, but in some way or another, we quickly gravitated towards each other and realized like, Yes, we're here for the same reasons and we have the same trepidation here. How fast did you realize that I was literally the opposite <laughs> of the vapid 
hot girl. It was really, really fast. I mean, within within that first week, it was very clear. Uh, I wish I remembered more details about it. I don't know if our brains have blocked it out at this well, point. Well, in particular, your brain, and I can just tell you this from the work that I do, your brain would have blocked it out because you were walking through the door knowing you were carrying a quote-unquote secret with you through the door. So you're already in a fight or flight response from the second you opened the door, right? Where the rest of us, I mean, yes, it's intense, it's overwhelming. But to your point, I don't have anything to tell you. I'm going to have to battle against your what I know are going to be your perceptions of me, which is what you just said. And that's been my life's journey is trying not to go overboard in trying to get people to not think that way about me, right? That I've just kind of settled into it, which actually works out just fine as you age. (laughs) It all kind of comes together at the same time, which uh, maybe that's not so good, but either way. So when you walked in the door, okay, for those of you who don't or have not watched the real world, the very, first of all, Google it, but the very basic premise was seven people from different walks of life, all brought to live in one house, and then they would film us for many months and turn that into a 23-episode season that showed on MTV. Okay, so typically, I think that their blueprint was a person of color, right? A gay person, a, to your point, a, you know, hot white girl, a hot white dude, maybe a really religious person. I, I don't know what they did behind the scenes. I'm only guessing that looking at it. The other archetype was the the like clueless, innocent person. Clue. Okay. Yeah. So that has, what do they call that? The touchstone character? Right. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So they actually, they're casting, they're not telling us this, but they're, they're filling these, these roles and these quotas and these archetypes, which is really kind of, wow. I mean, as I'm speaking it out loud, I just, I have so many feelings about it that we'll have to just be a whole nother episode, but When you walked in, because I was a 21-year-old horny wackadoodle (laughs) who had a lot more depth than anybody gave me credit for, but still, I was like, ooh, that's my guy. (laughs) I told you this before. I was like, oh, he came. Yay, good. He's here. That's going to be my boyfriend. Like, this will be so fun. It's all going to be so great. And I think, I think that, and I really, because we knew the sort of standard archetypes that we thought they were going to fill, I was like, oh, and I know who the gay one is, so I can take him off the the page. Isn't that crazy that we think these things? And they're also our young mind. I mean, I, I hope, I mean, I can speak for myself. I have evolved so much past that point. But I, th- I think I was the first person you told. Did I keep my game face when you told me of my disappointment? And I believe it makes sense in that because you questioned me in a safe way. Mm-hmm. I vaguely remember this. It wasn't just like, you know, Melissa going, tell me what is going on with you? You you questioned me in some kind of safe way where I was like, okay, yes. Always coaching right out of the womb. Oh, there's two gay guys on this one because I was absolutely convinced. That Same. That Same. We all, everybody, every, we all felt that. And Matt, we love you. We love you. And none of us should get pigeonholed for anything. I shouldn't get pigeonholed for my what I, everybody thought about me, you, whoever. It doesn't matter. If we've learned anything, I think, in these last few years, it's how wrong we are 99.9% of the time. And if anybody took even a modicum of time to go a little bit deeper, all of their beliefs would get crushed and diminished just like in the snap of a fingers, right? So when we first got there, and I'll, I'll sort of fast forward us to this point, if you guys didn't watch it, I think you can watch it on YouTube. So this would be real world New Orleans the first time. So what was that? Two thousand? I think if you put something like that in the search engine, you can find you can get it. It's season nine. Season nine. Okay. So like I said before, 
Danny obviously comes out. Now, remember, it's not it's not funneling to the masses yet. This is just inside of our little film bubble. The house is a, is a studio. It's a set, essentially. So even though you have said that, it hasn't reached outside of the walls. It's just reached us, right? And I want to say a couple, maybe a few weeks or a couple months into filming, Danny's then boyfriend, who was in the military, comes to visit. Will you tell everybody what happened? So yeah, there was Paul. So so back, there was Jim. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, we had sort of like come out to each other and wrap that up. We were still living together and hanging out together all the time. But then, yes, I was still, you know, going out to the gay bars and she's going to the lesbian bars. Sometimes we would intermix. But I met this guy named Paul probably a month before filming started. And Paul was a... Whoa. Yeah, that's wild. That was so new. Yeah, it was right before. He was a, a captain in the army, actually. And he was an airborne ranger, which... That all sort of got swept over in the whole thing. So he wasn't just in the military, but he was like in this elite unit. And at this time, even though it's really difficult to believe now, but gays were not allowed in the military. And the policy was called don't ask, don't tell. So it was essentially like you can be in the military, but if there's any revelation that you're gay, you're immediately kicked out with negative terms to it. Like a dishonorable discharge at that point. Thank you. That's the truth. No, but I was curious. Like, is that true? You would be dishonorably discharged if you admitted to being gay? Yep, you were kicked out dishonorably wow. discharged. So, so yes, uh, he started coming and, you know, visiting me down there, which was really, really risky for him to take part in that show, which is, for anyone who saw it, his face was blurred through the whole thing. You just heard a voice and his, this guy named Paul, which... It shouldn't have even have gone by his first name because even that was just too obvious. I'm pretty sure like the people he worked with knew and they would poke him about it. But it was really, truly risky. It was pretty dumb on his part, actually. <laughs> uh, like if I had been in his shoes back then, I'd be like, hell no, I'm staying away from this. Just like you, the smart one who was like, I'm done. Peace out. <laughs> yeah. So when he came to the show to visit, did he have any negative ramifications after that in in the military not to him personally directly yeah. but it completely for both of us just made our lives near impossible to live i we remember lived in fear so this is where you know so by the way i went into this whole experience traumatized from growing up anyhow growing up in the closet in the south mm-hmm. and then i show up on this show where i'm being out so like subconsciously i'm terrified my instinct when i got out of that van the first day was to just run <laughs> Yeah. Do you think you knew maybe you're how old were you? 20, 19, 20? 21 at the time. 21. So do you think your soul knew that it was going to launch you into this iconic moment the way that it did? So let's back up. The whole reason that I did the thing to begin with was not because I wanted fame or notoriety. Any of that could have been some potential bonus, but you did not assume back then. Like it wasn't the norm to any anything no. to go beyond that. No. If if anything extracurricular came of that, great. But that's not what you expected going into it. It was very different expectations. What I really was set on was having grown up repressed in the closet in the South, living amongst deep, 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 deep hypocrisy everywhere I looked. You know, every Southern good Christian who was just racist and homophobic as hell. And yes, going back to the things I heard nonstop, just hateful, hateful, hateful. Not to say that all those people I grew up around were hateful. For every three hateful people, there was one amazing, wonderful person. But so much deep hate. 
says a lot about where we are as a country today. A lot of those people haven't changed a bit. The country may have changed, but they're the same. Anyhow, I was so exhausted from all of that growing up that I just, something deep in my soul, part of me is I'm generally someone that just, like, if I see injustice, I need to speak for it. That's just deeply ingrained in me. But there was a part of me that just needed to, like, speak to hypocrisy. I was just done with it. I was drained from it. And I knew it could have tanked my life. It could have, there was, like, no clear view of what the other side would look like. For just as much of good that could have come from it, I was prepared also. Like, this could be mm, Right. And probably really scary. I mean, meaning your 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 actual physical beat body is possibly in danger. Did you know that OG is an NSF certified organic skincare company? Because they are committed to a seed to skin approach. That way you can know everything that you're putting on your skin is from the purest ingredients from the earth. I am a fan of all the OG products. My makeup bag looks like an OG makeup stand, (laughs) but my favorite right now is the sculpted face sticks. I love carnelian. It gives me this buildable, luminous, dewy glow, and I'm obsessed You guys can find OG on all major social platforms from YouTube, TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram at OG. That's O-G-E-E. You can also go to their website, www.og.com, and check out all their products. They're stunning. You will love having them on your countertop. All right, guys, let's get glowing with OG. I had a huge aha moment when I first started working with Joe at Blueberry Nutrition, and that is blueberry-nutrition.com. And when you go to their website, start by taking the quiz. It will give you an individualized program that's created just for you. So when I first started working with Joe, she had helped me find these small changes, these tiny habits that I could make for my overall health. At the time I had been feeling dizzy and my blood pressure was low and she really got to the root of the problem. Her whole method is to get you off of those vicious cycles of losing the same 20 pounds over and over again. Her method was designed to create lasting changes for you, changes that are doable, that come from small habit shifts. Go check out blueberry-nutrition.com and start your health journey today. You were talking about all the trauma, all the trauma that comes from growing up um, in a world, you know, I think because, you know, I grew up in the South too. So I, different though, very, very different. I mean, I grew up in a very like progressive college town. I definitely didn't see or, and my family was not, I wasn't around any of that stuff that you're talking about. I had a very, very, very different experience, but it was adjacent to me. I saw it very close by. I didn't have to feel it on the daily, but I saw it. And it was terrifying to me too. I think a lot of that energy is a lot of people responding to their collective fear over time, like you said. And a lot of times they don't even know how to stop. They don't even know how to do it differently. you know. But in the meantime, when you are receiving it, when you are receiving it, it is beyond traumatic. You are terrified all the time. And I'm sure maybe you didn't know that you were gay. You hadn't fully um, embraced that moment, but you knew 
Or you at least knew that you were the thing that they were talking about. And you at least knew that you were the thing that they were talking about that they were going to hurt if they found it walking alone on the street, right? I think those are the, that's the messaging that you're getting as a young person. So you're talking about bringing that, bringing that, that collective trauma of your childhood into the doors of the real world and why you didn't just turn around and run away. My instinct said run. And I had a really amazing moment with you during that filming that show where I went to a to a church with you one day and something spiritual came over me and it was kind of my first reckoning with a vague sense that I I did survive something really traumatizing but I wasn't enough of myself yet I mean you remember like I broke down that day I wasn't aware enough to be like oh no wonder I'm losing my shit right now like I went through all that but you push it all away and you just get caught in survival mode mm-hmm. and yeah evangelical America is toxic as hell and we're seeing the end of it now. This is why this is such an interesting, interesting time to talk about it is because that culture that I were talking about that I lived through that traumatized the hell out of me that did keep me deeply repressed. We're seeing its culmination now in America and its implosion and all of the negative things that are coming out sideways because it's so it is so repressive and it does carry so much bile and it is so dark in so many ways. And it is based in pure fear. Well, it's pure fear and it's pure fear on so many levels and anything, I believe anytime there's an evolution at hand, we first double down on all of the repressive fear-based behaviors. So we're experiencing, I I I believe, this is my belief, just to clarify, this is my personal belief. That's what's happening is any kind of you know, under the cover fear somebody had is on hyperdrive right now. But I also believe, hopefully, because I have to believe this, I have to, because I have three children and you have a daughter. So I have to believe that we break and then we grow. I have to. I have no other choice than to believe that. So my hope is that buckle your seatbelts because this shit's going to get rocky as hell. We haven't even started the bumpy section. I don't believe in terms of 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 the breaking open of this. And I'm sad to say, I don't know that you and I are going to see it. You know, I, I hope that our children see it and, and see that evolution come to fruition, but it is going to hurt our backs for quite some time. And to your point, and you do this a lot, you're such an, uh, an advocate, you, you speak so loudly and it's so important because we need to have those voices. You know how I feel about things. I have made a conscious choice to do what I can to try to have a bridge that is that is flow, that is anytime that hyper fear comes to the table, that we have the choice to turn it towards love and that I have to, for my own sanity, not hate anyone. I, I can't, I have to do that. And that's the only way I know how to do it is that I'm going to say inside my body at every turn, okay, I forgive all the things. And now you're going to choose it. Oh, still no. Okay. Now? No? Okay. Keep keep going. I just have to stay on that cycle or I'll go crazy. I don't know how you feel about that, but it's maybe it's a forgiveness path or a, a grace path or I don't know what it is. It's just, to me, it's personal survival. I mean, how do you handle that? Not getting filled with anger. I absolutely agree with you. And it's absolutely what, ironically, they generally teach the idea of having grace and loving people. I, the older I get, the more... I, I'm not religious. You and I are not religious, but we both believe there's a higher power. There is a higher power. And if Jesus represents that to you, wonderful. 
let's use that as a metaphor, I gravitate towards his core message, which is not what evangelical America is caught up anymore. Evangelical America has degraded into an obsession with power. And that power is rooted in just deep fear and hate of others and things changing. We're in this really interesting time where technology, humanity is evolving faster than we can keep up with through technology. And that technology right. and that information is bringing light to things that many are not ready to face. We've collectively wanted to go, oh, that's not real. I mean, I've had that feeling so many times where I've thought that can't be. People can't hate to that degree. They can't be that cruel, right? You you don't want to absorb it because it seems impossible, but then you see it and now we're seeing it and you can't look away. And so we've got to have that next chapter. By the way, everybody, yeah. if you... If you hear a crazy background noise, it sounds like Rice Krispies. That's rain on my tin roof. I can just see Will right now going like, oh my God, what do I do with this? But you know what? We're going to keep, we're just going to truck on through. That's what we do, D. We just keep trucking through. Okay, so I have a question because this is another one that came up quite a bit. When all of us first came off of the real world and it was blasted out into the stratosphere and everybody's sees everything and now you're out. I mean, not out, like you're out, gay out, and you're also out, out, and we're out of the house and we can now go and do what we want to do. And my personal experience was traumatizing. I cannot even imagine what you were going through. And I think all of us collectively at that time were trying to you know, like what, what did Libby tell me the other day? She would just take a straw and stick it out of the ocean. Like that's how much you were trying to just your head wasn't even above the water. It was still a straw under the water, right? And I feel like you were like in a submarine. <laughs> but but you had to put on this face. You were on the cover of Out Magazine. I cannot tell you how many people came up to me, and we're talking people that are very well known, and my friend down the street who came to me and said, I came out because of Danny. You know, and I feel like Actually, I just had a thought that's really interesting. When somebody says, I did X because of Y, if you, Danny, are not careful with your energy, you can absorb that responsibility and then and then accidentally absorb the, the subsequent trauma that may or may not occur in somebody's life. And I never really thought about it, how often... You know, when somebody says that to me or you, my feeling at the time would be like, that's so amazing. I felt so I felt so inspired and proud to have walked that path. And I just realized that's also an additional, you know, it might be it might be with a bow on it, but it's still an additional thing that's put on your porch. I'm so glad we're talking about this. The interesting thing is, I think everybody who knows that show likely imagines that all of us stay in touch and we know each other's experiences, blah, blah, blah. But the truth is, is we don't really. You leave that experience and you go off into Disneyland. It's yeah. just pure excitement. There's so much great happening. I think now as adults, we can talk about what happened underneath the unseemly side of it all. And yes, yeah, so like we were just talking about, it came out. I mean, what was that like being on the cover of Out Magazine? What was it like having all of this gay Brad Pitt energy coming at you? A wonderful, amazing, mm. exciting, brilliant, unbelievable experience. Too much for me to take in. This naive kid from small town Georgia, I just, I didn't know what was coming at me left and right, but I just swallowed as much of it as I could. And I made the most of it as I could. But deep down, yes, I was putting on the space. That I, was, I was very confident. I was caught up in a really toxic relationship for years because I had this deep down sense. The, the first thing that broke in me probably six or seven years later was I, I broke down and I realized 
I hadn't gotten to the root of it, but I realized I have gotten so trapped in this idea that I need to be this person for gay America. This gay yeah. America had seen like, you know, I was like, if Julia Roberts is yes. a good American girl for America back then to, to look towards, I felt like the gay version of that. 100%. Oh, there is this wholesome, fully dimensional gay guy that I can relate to. I grew up in a Who's small open and vulnerable, really willing to talk about everything. You would go there. I remember being on stages with you. People would ask you a question. You always answer. This is pre-vulnerability being chic, you know, on social media. This was still in the time where people, I mean, cultivated public images to to a really intense degree. And you said all the things. Right. And that's also like if you haven't rectified your trauma, if you haven't cared for your trauma, man, you upon reflection, it's pretty intense. Right. I think deep down, that was the beginning of me processing my trauma. I just didn't know that yet. And yes, for better or worse, I was revealing a lot because I knew that America needed it. I was basically being what I needed. But it was also terrifying because anybody who knows what happened, then this was only like a year or two after Matthew Shepard was crucified and murdered for being gay. So it was a scary time to be out, but I just, and kind of because of that event, it just, it galvanized me. Like somebody has to just be fucking real Mm. or we're never getting past this. And that's just what I became for years. But then towards the end of that, I realized like, I can't be this person because I'm not this person. I'm human and I am losing my shit. I'm breaking down. I had basically become, you know, a close-in in my own little world. I had a handful of trusted friends that I kept around me, but I kept myself just really a prisoner in my own house most of the time. And it was so unhealthy. Like looking back then, the choices I made, the relationship I stayed in, living in so much fear, it was so bad for me. How long did it take to leave the relationship, how many years after the real world aired did it take to start to get out of that phase? Well, let's be real transparent right now. And sure, talk about please. It's hard to talk about. Something I don't talk about is something that very few people know. But So that relationship ended and I lived in Seattle at the time before Amazon took over. <laughs> and I realized Seattle's too small for us and I left and I moved to New York. It was kind of one of my dreams. I kind of followed you there. I saw what it did for you and it did a lot of the same for me. But unfortunately, when I first arrived, I met a vampire, a true sociopath who reeled me in in every way that he built my trust. He was using everything that he learned about me to undermine my life. He stole my identity. He caused total chaos in my life for a year I trusted him so much and it was one of the only people I trusted at this time it was I was so vulnerable like I couldn't have been any more more vulnerable and this fucker drugged me and raped me Um, and that was (laughs) something that I tucked away for years later but it really that's really what broke me that's really what ultimately led me on the journey to like figuring out what I have figured out in this past year is that when you live yourself, your life openly and vulnerable and you allow people in, in the way that I've done. And at the time, I, I can now look back and say I was extremely codependent too. Yeah, gosh, D, I'm so sorry. And I was so lost and, and it allowed people like that to take advantage of yeah. me. Yeah, you know, I remember him 
in that moment, it was weird, right? Okay, so when somebody's that capable of manipulating another person, they come off very together. Remember that? Like very together, very charming, very open, very embracing. But there, I, I remember having a pit in my stomach. I don't know if you remember this whole conversation. I was like, something's off. Something is very, very, very off with this person. And after months and months and months, and you had ended that you weren't talking to this person anymore. Danny and I went to take a flight. I feel like we had to go somewhere for maybe we were giving a talk or I don't know what we were doing, but we were together. We were leaving. And this guy had gone in and canceled all of your flights. Do you remember all this? We were going to your friend's wedding in the Bahamas. Oh my God, that's right. That's some of the stuff he would do. He Because yeah. he had no identity, he would yeah. cancel the flights. He caused total chaos in my life. Just yeah. havoc all the time. And I remember you could never quite crest getting away from it. So even though he wasn't in your physical space at all, and you had really seen who he was, he had all this ability to completely traumatize you over and over and over again. And I remember sitting there and I looked at your face and you were like, Kelly, this happens all the time. Like I make a dinner reservation. He cancels it. I'm going on a plane. He reroutes the plane. Like it's to the point of just a constant obsession that this person had. I, I would make dates. That's God, what he sabotaged friendships and dating consistently. So here's what it was really about. And yes, it was such a movie event, you know, in movies sometimes when the person has the sudden moment when they connect all the dots and you have this horrible. Yeah. Single white female. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. This is my single white female. It all comes together and you're like, oh my God, it's been him all along. And I remember like clearly vividly like going back to what you said and it was just painful to remember what you were saying and realizing like yeah there was something very off about him he's a true sociopath the truth is true like i'm not exaggerating true sociopath yes really should stick to his medications i learned later that he did this to other exes that he had by the way i was not dating him made that very clear from the start i remember that really about is what sociopath friendship friendship who he was so charming. He was from Montana. He worked at Condé Nasty, had his shit together, blah, 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 blah. Had all the lines. You would never know this charming person was a total freaking sociopath. What he was really doing was sabotaging my life continuously. He could show up and be my savior. He could save, remember? Oh, yes. I remember. A new flight. Or I'll come, I'll come and pick you up or I'll come and sort that out for you. That is some like dark stuff. So this will be for another day for you and I, because we've got to go back down that path and like sage that crap out of it because, or I mean, I'm, I'm being funny. I'm not making that light, but just, wow. You know, I mean, even my, my memory of the feeling, I get this pit in my stomach, just the feeling of being in his space and in that space was really, really insane. Okay. So I'm going to quick fire, ask you some of these questions because we'll run out of time, which makes me so sad, but I want to talk a little bit about your adoption, not you being adopted, but your adoption process. And that was, I'll adopt you. Um, and that was a lot of questions that people had to was, one, how did you do it? And two, how has it been being a single father? I love this question because I love talking about it. I'm a huge proponent of adoption. I want to give first off uh, some credit to some friends of mine who adopted an older brother and sister a couple of years ago that they're raising with their own natural child. These kids are in their teens. Like that is a lot. So me with my ex now, we adopted our daughter, Naya, who turns five in a week. Oh, and I'm going to interrupt you. So you did not marry Paul. 
your ex is, and this is on the internet, so I'm not saying anything, but your ex is a different person. We don't need to say anything else about it. But you were married for how many years? 10 years. 10 years. Okay. So just that, well, let's move on from that, but 10 years and you guys adopt. Yes. Okay. That, this is second ex that I was with long-term. We adopted Naya at birth. Um, it was a process that we committed to when I first met him. It was very clear he wanted to have a child and I was clear that I would have a child with the right person. It was actually my idea. He wanted surrogacy. I think surrogacy in many ways is selfish. It's extremely expensive. Many people turn to baby mills. I have a lot of problems with it. And there's so many kids that need to be adopted. And we, we it, to be fair, it is a difficult process. It took two years of really intrusive investigation. Got to find yourself a good agency to work with. It's expensive as well, but, but it's a quarter of surrogacy at minimal. There are great actually tax benefits to adopting that you can look into. I don't know what they are right now. They change, but that's part of the puzzle to look at. So I'm not saying it's easy. I think a lot of people think like, oh, well, that's the easy route. I'll just adopt if nothing else. Like, no. Well, I don't, who's that? I, I can't even imagine having that thought. How do you guys set it up right now? How often do you share custody? Yes. So when she was about one and a half, we separated and we have shared in, in these early years before school, we have shared equal time where she split her time between us. He lives in Boston and she's been in New York with me half and half. Not easy. Never wanted to be a single parent. It sucks. I'll just be real. It sucks. It's hard. Yeah. Fucking. Yeah. Parenting is a two job minimal. I think. <laughs> yeah. When, when it was that it takes a village and people would like giggle. Like, no, no, it actually does. And if you don't have one, like I don't have a village. I mean, I have friends, but I don't have same with you. It is, it is a very, very rewarding and wouldn't trade it for the world thing job, but it is really hard. hard. And, and, and Danny, I'm going to tell you something that you're not going to want to hear. Cause I just had this revelation. I felt so physical young kids, that was really hard for me. I had, because my body was going through a lot at that time. So having little kids was like, oh my gosh, the carrying, the lifting, the changing, all of that stuff. And I kept thinking in my mind, oh, it's going to be so different when they can do things on their own and communicate with me. What I'm noticing to me, everybody can have their opinion about it. This section of parenting is much harder to me than that was because you cannot check out you cannot put somebody in a room and go somewhere else because they're going to find you. But it's more the emotional thing, like having my 12-year-old come into his own revelations, his questions, you know, I'll say something that I'm just like throwing aside. And he goes, mom, what do you mean by that? Right? And then you have to go, oh my God, what do I mean by that? And like how much we're saying to them. And this age, especially that going into adolescence section, holy mother of Mary, just put your seatbelt on. I mean, it is really fun, like really exciting. But I don't think I fully took into account the importance of like, you want to give them autonomy and you want to give them that personal power, but they're still little. So you were diagnosed with HIV. This was how many years ago? So I was diagnosed with HIV about, I don't know, six years ago, five or six years ago now. But you, you went public with that, what, two years ago, three years ago? couple of years ago so okay. it took a while in a way it was very much a, a similar coming out experience again of mm. like facing it and, and moving past the shame um because there's still so much stigma around it uh you know a lot of people just think like oh well that's what you get for it's what you deserve for your behavior it's okay. still very much tied to morals mm-hmm. which has been the story with my family and by the way like again going back to dark people but i now know that the person who infected me did it on purpose what yeah 
Yeah, that's been a pretty new revelation. It's <gasps> fucked up, but Danny. here's what I say. Like, Kelly, here's my philosophy and how I manage life now is traumatized people traumatize people. Why? Oh, gosh. All I can think of in this moment is, I don't want to try to wax poetic here. I feel like from the day you were born, there was some agreement. And you've just gotten so, you've gotten to my viewpoint, way more, way more of the stuff than most humans should ever have to absorb. That's what I think. And I know that you can be harder on yourself of like trying to navigate it and all of this. But when you put it all in a bucket, that bucket is the biggest bucket that I think I know about in terms of my my people that I'm around. And you still pick it up and carry it forth every single day. So that experience, I know you've come I know you've come a long way. I've seen you come a long way. But are you today? Are you managing it? Are, are you feeling well? Where are you today? Thank God we live in the time we do in the age of science. Thank God for science because, you know, I can take mm. minimal medication and live a relatively normal life. I'm so lucky. It's why, like, I don't, in my day to day, I don't think about it a lot. I take my medicine every morning and I carry on. Um, can viral loads be completely gone now? Absolutely. With yes. the medication. So you cannot transfer it. People might not know this, by the way. You know, Scott and I have done a ton of um, trips with the AIDS foundations throughout like Africa and all over the world, actually. And I just learned a lot. I learned a lot of things that I don't think a lot of us would know that if the medications, if you get the right medication, you cannot transfer it anymore and essentially be non-symptomatic yourself being less vulnerable to getting sick. Is that right? Yeah, thanks for bringing that up because yes, I don't think most people know this. I didn't know this before. I knew very little. I was, and actually, a big part of my journey was facing how ignorant I was about the issue being a gay man, which shouldn't have been, but it was just something that didn't touch my life a lot, didn't know a lot. I had lived afraid of it and had always been very careful, which was why it was a shock as a, an adult to end up with it this late in life now. But most people don't know if you take medication and you treat it and manage it, it's un it's called undetectable and I can't transmit it to anyone else. And you feel good. I feel mostly Fine. Good. As good as we can feel at, our <laughs> at this point. You always have a little bit of your engine running in the background to keep yourself mm. healthy. What happens is these drugs are amazing. They wipe the virus out of our bodies. It's actually more the side effects of the drug. Like it, it pulls down some of your energy, but mostly I feel mostly fine. That's um, incredible. Isn't that incredible when you think about the journey of HIV and AIDS, especially in this country, like that we can get to that place. And and that and that was one of the things I really when I, when we were traveling and working with the foundations, like people need to know why you want to go and push those medications too. Is that if you can become non-transferable, even if you don't understand how and why, you you can save so many lives that way. And that also people just need to know that that isn't something we have to be afraid of to the level that we were. We have to be safe. I don't mean that, but just that fear of you know I don't know how this is gonna affect other people. So I think that's a really important piece that a lot of people don't know. It's a lot of illogical fear with it now. And it's an mm -hmm. interesting time because a lot of people still have the mind because, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, yeah, this could have been a death sentence. That's what's so amazing. Yes. About my it. mom's, one of my mom's best friends died of it when I was in the nineties. That's in what Canada. I'm traumatized from. That's mm -hmm. what drove my behavior growing up as a young gay man. 
part of the reason I stayed in relationships was it kept me safe. I wasn't having sex outside of the relationship. So right. I, well, that's the other thing about you. You've had, uh, since I've known you, you've always just had these long relationship to the next long relationship. <laughs> that's you. You're like the ball and chain, Danny. <laughs> okay, so listen, I want to make sure we get to, there's some like big things that everybody had asked me. Thank you, by the way, for sharing all of that. I know those are hard things. I hope that bringing them up to the surface is not, I feel like you're in a place now where you can do that. And the last thing I would ever want to do is re-traumatize you of having to talk about it. So I do know that your voice matters to people. And I do know that your journey, all of our stories matter to someone. You never know who's going to be affected by it. And you were saying about that book that helped you so much. I guarantee you the writer of that book had no idea, had no idea that you would be in this cabin in Vermont after 43 years of of intensity. And this would be not that that's the only thing, but that that's one of the primary things that is changed the game. So guys, this is my begging you to tell your story to have the courage to tell the story because I think it helps so many people. Oh, gosh, you don't have to answer this. This, of course, got asked by like 100 people. Are you single? No. Okay, that's all you got to say. We'll just leave it right there. And oh, here's one more question. Any regrets, especially from real world? And and let's also maybe just in general, do you have regrets? Do any of us not have regrets? Uh, if you don't, you're not living. But but about the, maybe about the real world. I think that's what they were asking. Do you regret doing that show? I think I definitely straddle often 50-50 regretting doing it. For every bit of it that has been such an incredible experience, there's been a lot of pain that came with it. But what I, I think is at the core, beginning with that experience and what I regret is not believing in me through all of this, letting my narrative be driven externally, mm, wow. continuously through my life, which allowed some of these dark people I talked about to come in the door. You know, those people would have never been allowed in. You, and you know, you know, there are many other chapters to the yeah. that story that we have not talked about today. There were other stalkers and in insanity, police stalkers. <laughs> and, but I think all those people got in the door because I wasn't believing in the core of mm. me confident in myself. Yeah. I didn't value me. I I let so much of my early years drive my internal narrative. Mm. As we all do, right? We're all just responding from childhood trauma all the time until we see it. And then, you know, ultimately what this year in this book I've talked about really, really has turned the light on to is what triggers are, what flashbacks really are. Like it's not it's not the Vietnam movies that we think it is. And it's not a military thing, like those continual flashbacks and how they trigger you and your response mechanisms, becoming aware of that, and then how it drives your internal voice to beat you up, to punish you, to bring all anything that's negative, that's under the surface consistently in your subconscious. You're swimming and, then it, and then it loops over and over until it gets so hardwired and so deep that you've actually restructured your brain patterning, right? Because you're just on that same loop. I mean, this is, and people listening to this will appreciate it, I think. It's it's my deepest passion in life, right? Finding love over worry. And it's so much deeper than those little catch words. It's the finding has to be the consciousness. You have to understand that you're looping your thoughts. You have to, have to start by choosing to love yourself that's the first step. It's not like I love trees and I love my neighbors. No, 
you, you, Danny, me, Kelly, we're the golden necklace. If you come up to me and try to rip this off my neck, I'm coming for you. I'm not just going to hand it to you because I paid for that and I care about it and it means something to me. Like if I treated myself the way I treat this necklace, hello, think about that. I mean, it's profound when we forget how much care we don't give. This was such an aside comment, but uh, my therapist said to me once, he said, you love people so much and so deeply. Have you ever thought about just turning it around for just one day on yourself? And I was like, oh, God. <laughs> it's kind of harsh. I mean, I mean, in a, in, a, in a beautiful way that we're able to give out. And I know with you, you gave out till you gave out. You know, I mean, that's what I watched. And so I am so happy as your friend and your sister that the journey continues to rise you up. And, you know, if if your history has been any testimony, you're not done yet with like being the accidental activist. I'm sorry. What's the next thing? I don't know. We'll find out later. Stay tuned. Okay. So every time on the podcast, I do a thing called the three M's minute. All right. Oh, do you want to do the, the challenge? Do you know what three M's stand for in Flowland? I may have the order wrong, but it's much meditate move, right? Hey, Danny, I'm so proud of you. Yes. Okay. So I, I say this a lot. I feel like to have any growth, you kind of have to do those. And they seem very simplistic to people. But if I had a nickel for how many times somebody didn't eat, and then they can't figure out why nothing is working... And then you say, what have you eaten? And they say nothing and it's 3 p.m. So it seems super simplistic, but in order to heal ourselves, we have to do some basic things, which to me is eat, move your body. I don't care. It can be the smallest, littlest thing. I have been there, done that. And, you know, meditate again. Everybody can read my book about this. It doesn't have to be overcomplicated. It can be turning around when you're done with this interview, staring out the window for four minutes. That's all you got to do. You're not going to levitate and fly out of the roof and all that. So I always ask everybody, tell me your three M's today. What did you eat? What was your movement? And what type of contemplation have you done or will you do today? So I think about your three M's a lot because going back to what we were just talking about, it is essentially like the, the core of any work you're going to do on yourself starts with loving yourself. And it's not the vanity. It's not your success or your career and blah, de, blah, de, blah. It's loving yourself at the core as a human who can do good in this world and what you bring to others. But like, yes, you've got to feel and power that machine. And the way our modern world works, it's designed to suck you dry. Everyone's trying to do way too much nonstop. Yeah. And it begins There's no hustle and flow, yo. It's an illness in our culture, starting our corporate culture mm. requires of us to go nonstop. And everybody's caught up in this death loop. It's a death wish and a death loop to work yourself to death at your corporate job. I'm going to get on a soapbox here. Work yourself to death at your corporate job to acquire as much crap as you can acquire, to show as much as you can, to present as much as you can. Everybody's running themselves to yeah. death. And to feel horrible. We're getting close to the end of this chapter mm. of our story here as a society because it's not sustainable. But in my day to day, I'm consistently thinking. Yeah, about, what was your move today? What did you do? Did you did you go anywhere? Hike, walk, bike? Work and keeping work manageable. Mm. So like all of this will have more impact if I begin by keeping my work manageable and keeping my expectations manageable. We could talk about that part of it a different day, but. My sort of, and what I did today and what I do often is I take regular breaks from work and I step outside. Everybody can't do this, but I go in, I just stand beside the stream that's right outside my mm. cabin, 
into the water flow and the waterfalls. Sometimes I close my eyes and I let my mind drift to whatever it needs to drift towards. I, at some point every day, try to take a walk. It's my movement. It's kind of what I've been doing my whole life before I knew like this is something that is good for me. And right. Yeah. As a teenager, Same. every Same. night, this is sort of weird, but I used to think I was the biggest weirdo for doing this, but now I know it was my meditation. Every night, right at dusk, as a teenager, I took a walk down my road, barefooted on gravel road. Oh, so I it was very thematic. As- I do that with my kids and they refuse to wear shoes despite my, my, and then I go, yeah, because of course, like you're my child. <laughs> They've got like a rat's nest and no shoes and we're just cruising down the street every single night. I can, I see it and I love it. So move. So your move is walking. Your meditation is looking at the stream and letting your mind wander and tell me what you had for breakfast. And my breakfast today, breakfast, I love breakfast food, but it's not my big thing. Today, I just did oatmeal. Do you put anything on it? No, I try to keep it simple and plain. It's. And then, okay, but see, I'm asking everybody and here's why. Because it doesn't have to be overcomplicated. I do the same thing every single day for breakfast because I'm tired. I've got kids. I've got work. I've got things. So I'm just going to keep it simple instead of trying to reinvent the wheel every morning and come up with hollandaise sauce. So, you know, I love it. Libby said she does um, bananas and peanut butter on a rice toast. Scott said oatmeal, oatmeal, (laughs) oatmeal. So I think people can get good ideas. And then my last and final question, this is going to be a hard one, okay? So I just want you to, what's for dinner? Uh, meatballs. Hey. I just started making homemade meatballs. Oh. Yeah. I, I don't know why I never, ever thought to make meatballs. I, I love them. No, I never think about it either. And you're right. You actually just inspired me. And you could keep them in the refrigerator and just, you know, grab and go whenever you needed one. They're easy. You can put all sorts of ingredients in them and make all different kinds of flavors. I never thought of this. So this is what I do for dinners is I like to come up with really simple dishes like this that only take one pot to make, but things that can be changed up each week with different ingredients to give you a different twist. But I make the same shit every week too. When you have your daughter, what do you make for her? For for Naya, I well, Naya actually likes vegetables a lot. So she eats a lot of green beans and broccoli and cauliflower. That's yeah, amazing. She, she is edamame. She is a, an interesting child. By the way, I love that kid to death. She, he, everyone thinks she's my child because, I don't know, they maybe we look alike a bit, but we uh, personality-wise are a lot of like, and everyone just thinks and assumes she is my biological child. And in a lot of ways, she is like me. We have a special thing together that I love. We bonded over. We both love pickles. <gasps> That's so funny. You know who else loves pickles? My Lucy. And so I have a theory. I have a theory. Okay, I think all my kids have are old souls, but Lucy is a particularly old soul. Let's just say I think she's been round and round and round and round and round and round a thousand times. And I think that about you and I think that about Naya because I've been around her energy. And there must be a pickle thing. I mean, there's got to be a pickle thing. There's got to be some kind of, I don't know what that would be. The aged pickle. Maybe. It's the <laughs> Okay, we'll have to leave it at the aged pickle, you guys. Danny, thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. And thank you for having me on. It means a lot. Do you know the hardest part of this? What's that? Is staying in my time frame. (laughs) I know because, well, one, we haven't talked in a long time. To me, your story, there's part one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12. Let's keep going down. And that maybe there's more. I think we touched on so many things. We just kind of like skimmed 
the surface of so many very, very, very big things, but they're all worthy of a deep dive, you know? And like I said before, your bucket's just a bit fuller than most. You know, I try to look at it this way. My bucket's full, but I always try to think about there's always so many people in the world that have it so much harder. Oh, yeah. Well, your bucket's full. And then I'm just going to say this because it's really important to me. It's always been important to me. And I, I call it, we cannot barter pain. Whenever I hear somebody say, yes, but people have it worse. No. I mean, yes, of course. That is a fact. Of course, it's a fact. And also, your bucket has to be attended to and matters so much and can't be thrown down into the river because somebody else has a bigger bucket. You know, I just, it means so much to me that we, we honor it. And I may, and, and maybe part of that is that I've had trauma. I haven't had big as trauma as you or some other people, even Scott, that his childhood was really traumatic. And we talk about it a lot and I'll often go, oh, I don't, I really shouldn't say anything because it's not that bad. And I've caught myself over and over and over again, because I think what happens is it starts to live in us somewhere. So that's my mom, Mikkel preaching to you. You're very right. And if we don't tend to our own buckets, we just put that in somebody else's bucket. Exactly. Y'all, this is a this is a family style KFC bucket. <laughs> <laughs> it totally is with lots of sides. Lots of sides. Can you believe that I I thought it was like the greatest gift of my life if I got to have KFC when I was a kid, which I never did, but if I did, it was like Damn, it was such a special thing. Such a, that and Taco Bell. Oh <laughs> my goodness. My mother was the spelt bread kale chip mom before it was cool. So I was like, I would basically murder you to get a little Debbie and some KFC. <laughs> um, all right, D, I love you so much. I hope you'll go and look at that stream after we hang up. And for you guys out there in flow land, keep on keeping on and check out those show notes for Danny's book because I really want to know. And just wait for flow, D. I'm about to blow your mind. 